You are listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast, episode number 306, Survivor Voices Leading Change with Jerome Elam. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast here at Vanguard University's Global Center for Women and Justice in Orange County, California. My name is Sandy Morgan, and this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Our guest today is Jerome Elam. He is president and CEO of Trafficking in America Task Force, child sex trafficking survivor, survivor leader, recipient of the Award for Courage presented by the National Council of Jewish Women, a member of ECPAT Global Survivors Forum, a member of ECPAT Global Network of Survivor-Led Organizations. He's a staff writer and columnist for Communities Digital News, a special advisor to the Utah Attorney General, a Marine Corps veteran, recipient of the U.S. Attorney General's Alliance Lifetime Achievement Award for anti-trafficking work, and chosen as one of New York's new abolitionists. He's so much more, and you're going to learn about that in our conversation. Welcome to the show, Jerome. Thank you, Sandy. It's an honor to be here. You just came back from Warsaw, Poland for the OSCE conference. There's 57 member countries. Tell us what that is, why you were there, and maybe a couple of other things I'm going to ask you. Absolutely. Thank you for that question. The uh, Warsaw Human Dimension Conference is a yearly conference that is put on by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Office of Democratic Initiatives and Human Rights that brings together the 57 member countries of the OSCE, where we can basically give them a report card on how they're doing in terms of addressing human trafficking. So one of the things I've been really grateful for is the opportunity to work on what we call the National Referral Manual, which is which is a guidebook used by the 57 member countries, the OSCE, to help combat human trafficking. So we are able at the Warsaw Human Dimension Conference to talk to these countries about how they're following the guidelines, how they're doing combating human trafficking, and to give them any guidance we can to help them improve their approach to it. Well, who who's we? Because I know you're there. I know a few right. other people. It's not all survivors. No, exactly. Well, you know, I am uh, grateful. I am actually in my second term as a member of the OSC ODIR, International Survivors of Trafficking Advisory Council. But I, I was at the Warsaw Human Dimension Conference as a member of the council, but also as a member of civil society representing my nonprofit, Trafficking America Task Force. So the global community can attend this conference and really talk about these important issues. And we both know human trafficking is evolving faster than the law can keep up with it. So we're here to talk about how to, how to institute cutting-edge approaches 
to keeping innocent victims from being scooped up by human traffickers and exploited. So this is this is the world community. There were people there from all over the world. And I was grateful that we all shared that singular passion to bring in human trafficking. And just recently, we interviewed Ioana Bauer, and she's been a participant there too. So in the show notes for our listeners, I'll put a link to her interview last time too. So I want to ask you, as a survivor, what is your greatest challenge when advocating for male victims of trafficking? That's unfortunately an easy question. Uh, Awareness, getting people to understand the gravity and the scope of the problem when it comes to, to male victims of human trafficking. Now, unfortunately, as men and boys, our, our our westernized concept of ego doesn't allow us to admit that we're victims or that we're vulnerable. So we're less likely to disclose. And we have 14 times the suicide rate of the norm wow. and 38 times the rate of drug overdose uh, as victims of sexual assault and trafficking. And we're 50% more likely to be incarcerated as juveniles. Wait, wait, be incarcerated? But you're yeah. the victim. Tell me why. It it, For well, what? Well, one of the things you have to understand about human trafficking is it's so multifaceted in the sense that when you're being trafficked, there's forced criminality. I mean, you mm. can, I mean, typically when it comes to, to, to men and boys in particular, they're more likely to be arrested for shoplifting or petty theft than they are for, for human trafficking or be recognized as victims of human trafficking. So what it is, is they exploit you for every ounce of your your humanity. So you're forced to do all these things with your life being threatened if you don't. And so you're arrested, but you also can be arrested for, for prostitution, which, you know, again, we really push the advancement of safe harbor laws that recognize that 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 victims of human trafficking aren't criminals. And so that's been a slow, a slowly evolving modality. But you can be arrested as a victim uh, and, and incarcerated and spend years in prison and jail uh, until actually it's it's actually figured out that you're you're a victim, you were forced to do this. So there are so many people that I know in particular that have these long criminal histories when they were victims of human trafficking, and then they have to fight to get those records expunged because they were put on trial and convicted of a crime that they were not guilty of. They were forced to do this. And I think to that point, we've talked about that on this podcast. We want to rescue, and I'm using air quotes for our listeners because (laughs) rescue is just a word that has so many problems. What are some of the problems when we hear the word rescue? You know, Sandy, great question. You know, that, unfortunately, that's a narrative that is very seldom realized. I mean, typically, the majority of victims of human trafficking get out of their own volition. They find a way out. I mean, there's not this knocking down the door, rushing in with a flashlight, scooping the victim up, running out. Typically, either you come to the attention of law enforcement through another crime or, or you're arrested for prostitution. And then eventually it's figured out. So so rescues do happen, but that's not how victims typically get out of, of being trafficked. I mean, that's just a, a very, that's an urban myth. Yeah. Okay, good. I'd <laughs> love to pound that home every chance yeah, I get yeah. because we have to start looking for 
exit pathways for victims so they become survivors, be leading change or just leading the life they really wanted. So we're talking about exit strategies. I want to go back to how it begins. And I know you're an expert witness on grooming. And when we talk a lot about how children are recruited, oftentimes online. And we the, the conversation these days about online safety for kids is huge. I don't think we realize that trafficking is one of the risks. So talk to us about grooming. Yeah, grooming, My the way I describe grooming is psychological quicksand. And what this means is that is that when a predator targets a child, they actually entice them through giving them gifts. And, and let me just put this in the context for myself. As a child, my mother was an alcoholic, pregnant, pregnant at 17. I was born into an environment where there was domestic violence, drug abuse. I was, I was being molested. So if anybody paid attention to me for five seconds, I mean, they had me. And so when I was targeted, this person sharing with gifts gave me affection. So I was like, I was like, I would do anything for this person because mm -hmm. I'd never known what it liked to feel like I mattered and they may feel like I mattered. And so once that happens, then they begin to slowly rope you in by, you know, they'll, they'll tell you a dirty joke, they'll show you pornography, and then they slowly get to the point where they begin to molest you. And in my case, as in many, they threatened my mother's life and said, well, if you, if you talk about this, we're going to kill your mother. And irregardless of how big a train wreck your parents are, whether alcoholics or, or, or whatever, as a child, you're still going to do whatever you can to protect them. So my silence, I was in a prison of silence by these threats of violence. And so I didn't speak out and, and, and it just began to escalate. So I was trapped. And also, I want to make a point about grooming in that I like to say that they not only groom the child, they groom the adult around the child. So this individual, in particular, this predator, will will, will gain the respect. I mean, let, let's say Jerry Sandusky, for example, will gain mm -hmm. the respect of everybody around that child. So when that child tries to speak out, they're not listened to. Now, what we know from the research is that uh, a child who's a victim of abuse or trafficking has to tell a total of nine adults before they're believed. What? And I, and I, yeah. And, and I like to quote, you know, Jerry Sandusky's first victim to come forward, went to his high school principal and said, Jerry Sandusky's molesting me. His principal said, what do you want to get Jerry in trouble for? He's a great guy. So we have that that mm. wall that we went into with, with children, especially not being believed. And so that's where we really need to, through this podcast and through our work, make sure that that we listen to children. And, and that we recognize the signs so they're not, they don't go through this hell I did for seven years as a victim of child sex trafficking. So can you t share how old you were when you, the grooming started? A absolutely. I, I was five years old. I was five years old. And like I said, it was a very chaotic situation with my mom being an alcoholic. She was dating, you know, every dirtbag. So my first memory as a three-year-old is, is the sound of my mother's mother's face being slapped by this person she was with. So I was in this kind of um, this hell where, you know, I didn't know which way was up. It was so chaotic. And so at five years old, my mother met a man we thought that we thought was the answer to our prayers. 
And when he started giving us gifts, taking us places, we thought, well, hey, you know, this is Prince Charming. You know, here's here's mm-hmm. on his white horse riding up and saving us. Well, we didn't know. And, and, and let me just say, this happens quite often that predators will target children through the mothers, the romance, the mother to get to the child. So here I am in a situation where I thought things were going to get better. And then he starts to molest me and it just escalates and gets worse from there. So let's talk through the stages and I and tell people how to get to your website, because I found this on your website. Right. It's uh, traffickinginamericataskforce.com. That's just, a lot of letters. I know. Uh, I know. I <laughs> that's okay. I, I type fast. Okay. So, say that yeah, one more well, time. Traffickinginamericataskforce.com. Okay. So let's talk through the stages. What is stage one? Well, stage one is definitely the targeting. I mean, it's, it's where, you know, someone is is being targeted by a predator and when they spot a child that they want to go after, they'll go ahead and, and make a plan in their mind about how they want to actually begin to groom this child and begin to target them. And so I think the identification of the victim is definitely, you know, where the whole thing launches and, and just escalates from there. Okay. Stage two, gaining the victim's trust. You know, and that is so key because, again, as in my case, when someone is kind to you for the first time in your life and, you know, they're buying you gifts and someone actually picks you up at picks you up after school when they say they're going to, because when your mother's an alcoholic and you're standing, you know, on the curb until dark, waiting, waiting for someone to come and get you. And then you've got someone who is there ahead of time with comic books, with candy, with, with sodas, and, and giving you all this attention. Then that that's when they begin to establish that that trust that you've longed for as a victim. You long for that, and I think that's again that's what we struggle with as adults, as adult survivors, is is learning to trust people again. Wow, I never thought that predators might use picking a kid up from school. But if you're often forgotten, that's a huge trust builder. It it really is. And I think when we talk about children, especially, Sandy, the thing about being a kid, like I say, it doesn't matter how horrible your parents are. In your mind as a child, you're making those excuses for them. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit older. So there was a show called The Brady Bunch. And so you're always imagining that you're living in in a Brady Bunch world. I mean, that that's your fantasy, but you're really living at the lowest level of Dante's Inferno because you're in that hell. And so as a child, that's the only way you survive is that you concoct these fantasies. But the reality of it is so much harsher that, that you're just abandoned, neglected, and you feel worthless. And I think that one thing I like to speak about, which you know, I'm, I'm writing a book, and it's in my book, is we talk about what we call a culture of helplessness. And I think mm-hmm. as a victim, especially a child victim, you're really ingrained with that culture of helplessness where you feel like you have zero power in your life. You can't really decide anything. You can't control anything in your life. So when a little thing like someone picking you up on time or someone, you know, uh, making sure that you're actually fed, 
which was my case as well, you know, making sure that you actually have a meal. That is like walking on the moon to you as a child victim. Well, and that speaks to stage three, filling a need. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I say, I mean, as a child, I was desperate for affection, like a drowning man's desperate for oxygen. As a child, you crave that. And when you when you grow up in that vacuum, that vacuum of, of love and affection, you crave that as a child. And you know, one of the things that I like to talk about is, you know, I spent you know, 25 years with a trauma therapist recovering from being trafficked as a child. And I would often sit there week after week and say, why, why am I here? And so many um, kids that were trafficked alongside me didn't make it. And one mm-hmm. thing that we came up with was that I had one person in my life who was my great aunt who showed me unconditional love. And she gave me that tether to this world that actually was a shield against the darkness that kept me in touch with, you know, the warmth and hope inside my heart. And I never, ever lost that. And most often when we talk about victims who don't make it, a lot of times we see people who have been so deprived of unconditional love and and just just so beaten down by their situation, that they just cannot find that hope and love in their heart. And that's what I try to do as a survivor and as an advocate is show people that that there's a hope and love in your heart. No matter what happened to you in this life, God's always going to love you. Wow. And so filling that need sometimes looks like providing the seeming love connection and the things people do for you when they love you, whether as a child or or as an adult. Absolutely. So. And, and one of the things you have to understand, and, and one of the things that we do in my advocacy work is we go in to the school system and we teach about what we, what we call healthy relationships. Because what you find is that, especially, you know, coming from a very dysfunctional environment, you have you have no idea what, what healthy love looks like. So when this predator comes along, and just gives you attention, you 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 interpret that as as mm-hmm. love and affection. It's really not, and that's why you know when we go into schools and 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 teach kids, you know, here's what a healthy relationship looks like. We get so many kids disclosing that they're suffering abuse, trafficking, or something else because they don't understand. They don't have any kind of relative gauge of what what it should be like. And so until you actually teach a child what they deserve and 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 what love looks like they are searching for it and have no idea what it looks like and that kind of then we start moving into this darker part of the stages of grooming isolating the child oh gosh you know that's key because again that's where you know again they gain the trust of all the adults around the child so the child that listen to and then they'll alienate the child from any connection they have whether it be, you know, friends or, or whatever, to alienate that child and say, that person's not really good for you. I don't really trust them. I don't think you should be hanging out with them. So they'll get you. But that sounds so- like they care for me if they're trying to protect <laughs> oh, me. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But it's not the truth. It's it's just a tactic they use. I mean, they wear a mask. I mean, mm. the mask they wear is that um, they're loving, caring, respectable individuals. But you, you pull that mask off and it's just pure evil. I mean, it's someone whose sole desire in life is to molest and and or and or hurt children. And so there's that facade that exists there 
that they use that to bait you and then rope you in. And once they have you, you know, in this position where you want to be around them so intensely because you've never had this, you know, this attention, then they know they can begin to, to, to do what they want to do. Well, and in that isolation, then there's no buffer adult to protect you and they have you alone, which was their goal. Exactly. And so, and then once you're alone, you know, you can be lost to the darkness because they start out slowly and begin to do things that escalates. And also, you know, we have to understand that there's that trap of shame that when you, when you're being molested as a child, especially as a male, there's this shame that you bear at what's happening. And they use that against you. I mean, they'll say, well, if, if you say anything, I'll tell people that this was consensual. You wanted to do this. And so there's that shame that's mm. there as a male that also keeps you quiet. And so you're you're in this tightly, this tight trap you just cannot get out of. And you just are, are just desperate and you're begging God to, to, to come and help you and save you. So that isolating and, and the abuse begins to be much more overt. I get that. The fifth stage, sexualizing the relationship, is a little more complex. Oh, gosh. It it all begins, I would say it all begins with with a hand on your leg. And then it moves from a hand on your leg to them actually, or actually I would say it begins with a hug, then then it moves to, to a longer hug, then a hand on your leg. Then they begin to begin to grope you and they make it seem like you owe them this. I mean, that you're indebted to them, that, that this is that, hey, you know, I, you know, I bought you this, I bought you that, I'm doing this for you, you know, uh, I'm treating your mom well, or and, and so that that you're indebted, that you owe them this, and, and that that you should let them do this. And then that just progresses. And again, you know you're just so trapped in that situation that before you know it, they're molesting you daily or several times a day and then and then getting worse from there. And, and how does desensitization factor into this sexualizing? I, I think they try and desensitize you to the fact that, that physical contact is, is, is normal. They normalize it in your encounters with them, that this is something that everybody does this. I mean, I, I remember them saying that, you know, this is something that everybody does. And so it tends, they want to desensitize you to um, severity of what's happening to you, even though everything inside you is screaming that this is wrong, that this shouldn't be happening to you. But then you've got this authority figure telling you, no, this is all normal. This this is happens all the time. And so, and this is where, you know, you struggle with that trauma, because one of the things about being a victim and a survivor, especially a victim, is you question yourself because here you've been just brainwashed by this predator to believe that that this was something that that you initiated, which is what they often say. And they also make you believe that you wanted this, which is totally, totally wrong. Well, and and sometimes that pivots on developmental stages where yeah. curiosity is part of how you are developing and yeah. they exploit that to make it look to the child like they were responsible 
And yeah. that I think is is one of the most twisted aspects of the grooming process. And I will just tell you from my own personal experience, and they would say stuff like, Oh, this is this is just practice for when you're with a girl. Oh, and, you know, just <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that 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 one they use that one on me. Oh, this is just practice. So all guys do this to get ready to be be with a woman. This is just pra- you know, and so there's all these head games that they play with you, and that's why, you know, again. It's really a struggle to, especially, you know, when you're a child and this happens to you, to begin to stop those tapes playing in your head that this predator put there and begin to understand what you're worthy of and what you deserve. And that sixth stage is when they literally control you. Oh, yeah. And how did you break out of stage six? Oh, gosh. It's, It's an unfortunate story because, you know, what happened with me is... I was trafficked from the age of five to the age of 12, so seven years. And I tried to tell a total of 10 people, including an ER doctor. One of the things that you that happens when you're a victim and you're in trafficking is that you're given a false identity. And in one case, I was given a false identity and I didn't respond to the name quickly enough. So I was thrown to the ground and this person had cowboy boots on and they kicked me until they bruised through my, through my ribs. And I went into the emergency room and the handler or trafficker that took me in stepped out of the exam room to smoke a cigarette. And so I, I whispered in the doctor's ear, you know, you know, they're hurting me. Please help me. Well, I didn't know that this trafficker had told the doctor that I was accident prone, attention seeking and made up wild stories. So I was not believed. And I came back three hours later with three broken ribs to teach me a lesson about not speaking out. So after seven years of of going through this and nobody listening, and and I was just filled with such hopelessness, I ended up in my mother's rose garden, which she cared more about the roses than she did me, with a bottle of vodka and a bottle of sleeping pills. And I took the sleeping pills and drank the vodka and, and drifted off to sleep. And I distinctly remember I heard a voice talking to me and it said your time on earth isn't done i want you to go back and fight for every child that's suffering as you have and and then i thought back and i and i recognized that voice and it was my my african american friend steve who had been murdered had been killed mm. by the traffickers while i was being trafficked so i woke up in an ex, in a, in in the emergency room and guess what there was a nurse there and that nurse dug her heels in and said, this boy needs help. The doctors were complaining about the paperwork. And she said, no, this boy needs help and we're going to get him help. So she, an angel, I call her, was there for me that day and saved me from being trafficked. And so that's why I'm grateful to all nurses. And I love, you know, training educating nurses, because if there's anybody that that's going to be trusted, it's a nurse. Because the nurses are there, they they care. I mean, it can be a a very hard situation, you know, you're busy all the time, but they always take the time to make sure that that you understand that that you matter to them and you're not just, you're not there to get out of the room as quickly as they can. That's why I love nurses. So she saved me that day and then I was able to get out of being trafficked and bounce around the foster care system. Then when I turned 17, I joined the United States Marine Corps and never looked back. 
Wow. Jerome, you do remember I'm a nurse. I do. And when I tell my story of beginning to be an advocate in anti-trafficking, I always start with working night shift. And my first victim of human trafficking was a 14-year-old boy. So this is such a meaningful interview. I just looked at the time. Our time is up. We've got so much more to talk about. And (laughs) and we will we will definitely schedule another opportunity to chat. In the meantime, I'm going to put links to everything in our show notes. And I'm going to give you uh, one minute for your closing statement call to action for our community. Absolutely. Thank you. I just want to say, you know, um, as a as a survivor of child sex trafficking, I will never know the joy of being a boy laying in a field of grass or watching clouds and picking out figures in their sh- in, figures in their shapes. But what I can do is fight to my last breath to make sure the next child has the has the right to be loved and cared for and and not be and not be trafficked and and, and taken advantage of. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a powerful conversation. And now we are inviting you to take the next step. Go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. You'll find all the links that we've mentioned in this conversation and so much more. And if you want to get involved, you need knowledge and insight and preparation training. You can find our anti-human trafficking certificate. You can find a link to come to ensure justice in March. You can become a subscriber so that you get episode updates in your inbox twice a month. Thank you for listening and we'll be back in two weeks.